Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. 欢迎来到费正清中国研究中心的哈佛论中国播客。The Fairbank Center is a world-leading center on China at Harvard University. In the West, we often consider Western philosophical discourse to have a degree of universality. This is not always the case, however, when we think about Chinese thought. Can China's past be conceptualized as a global heritage beyond individuals who are considered Chinese? I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center, and today on the Harvard on China podcast, I'm talking with Li Jenko, an associate professor in political theory at the London School of Economics. Her research examines Chinese political thought and linkages in political theory between East Asia and the West, and she's the author of the forthcoming Changing Reference: Learning Across Time and Space in China and the West from Oxford University Press. My name is Li Jenko. I'm associate professor of political theory at the London School of Economics. So the focus of my research is on how the Chinese past can matter, specifically how it can be figured as a global heritage. That is to say, how can the Chinese past be significant and important and present a theoretical resource for people who are not necessarily ethnically Chinese? So why does China's past matter? So the intervention that I'm making, or I'm trying to make with this current research project. Is to think about the ways in which the Chinese past actually doesn't matter, and I want to know why doesn't it matter in the same way that the West matters. So, for example, in my field, political theory, when you're talking about the kinds of normative judgments that we have to make every day when undertaking political action or, or political reform, the sources and directives for that reform are entirely Western, often associated with a canon of thinkers from Plato. Through to Rousseau, Marx, Kant, all the way up to John Rawls, and so it's it's quite interesting to me the ways in which that past, that intellectual historical heritage, matters for how not just people in Euro America but people all, all over the world think about political life and enact political judgment. So to me, the question isn't really why the Chinese past matters. The first primary question is why the Chinese past doesn't matter in the way that the Western past matters. So what would it mean for someone to see historically situated so-called Chinese thinkers as part of their own set of methodological tools or theoretical resources for thinking about critically analyzing politics and for promoting? Positive political reform, and, and in addition, for for calling from the past some kind of directive or precedent for where we should be heading in the present and future. So, how, so that's really my research question: How do we go from the Chinese past not mattering to the Chinese past actually being crucial to how we think and understand the world today? If that's the case, how do we figure the Chinese past as a global heritage? How does That philosophy become part of the sort of canon that we we think about, right? So, I, in in my current research, I'm I'm thinking about this question using sort of two very separate debates. The first debate at making the Chinese past relevant、um, is a series of thinkers associated with the con- the contemporary Confucian revival, and I focus mainly on Anglophone philosophers such as Stephen Angle and Joseph Chan. Who are trying to put forward a muscular and progressive version of Confucianism that is modern and compatible with our contemporary political and social commitments,、um, specifically to things like、uh, democratic equality and political participation. So for them, the Chinese past becomes relevant only to the extent to which it can become modern. It becomes compatible. Certain elements of the Confucian past become compatible with commitments we already hold to liberal democracy. So that's one way of making the Chinese past relevant. 
I think one of the reasons that I, I criticize this approach is that I think it draws an unduly sharp distinction between the traditional past in which Confucianism is situated and the contemporary present um, in which we find ourselves and which is dominated, in fact, by the terms of a Euro-American modernity. So precisely because they assume this rupture, their, their method of modernizing Confucianism and tends to use the terms of Euro-American modernity somewhat unreflectively applies them to the Chinese case and then extracts from the Confucian past those elements that are always already compatible with commitments we already hold. So what happens in this case, although their initial motivation for undertaking this research and this, you could call it a philosophical reconstruction, is to subvert the the dominance of Euro-American discourse in political and social life, they end up reproducing it precisely because they situate the Confucian past in, in the past as a, as a dead past, something that is uh, not continuing to the present. So as an alternative, I actually looked to a different set of debates that were taking place at Beijing University, at Beida, around the time of the May 4th movement, when a very similar question about the relevance, the global relevance of the Chinese past was being raised and, and responded to by a number of young thinkers, including Fu Xinian, Hu Jiegang, Hu Su, um, as well as some le- less well-known thinkers, including Yu Shijin um, and Zhang Shen, in journals such as the Guogu Yuekan, which is the National Heritage Journal, in response to contributions by Fu Xinian and, and people associated with May 4th iconoclasm, writing in journals such as the New Tide and, and New Youth, Xin Qingnian. So what many of these National Heritage scholars did was to resist the idea that past and present were clearly separate and were somehow incompatible with each other. Rather, they, they sought very carefully to find ways in which the present is itself dependent on the, the past and, and an ephemeral vantage point and an unstable vantage point from which to judge the past and to direct the future. So their way of undermining May 4th iconoclasm, which upheld the, the value of the past only insofar as it could serve the needs of the present, was to say that we'd lack a clear picture of what the present actually is and what its values might be. And it's in fact through fostering continuity with the past that we can come to have a clearer sense of where we're actually heading and also of how we might um, critically reform the present. So they undertook what I call in this project filiative activities. And these were activities meant to deliberately cultivate connections to the past. One thinker in particular, Yusha Jun, writing in the National Heritage Journal, he identified these processes with picking up strings of thread that had been left behind and binding them together, binding them to the present so that the past and present could be of one tally. And what he meant by that was basically um, sort of looking at the past not as a singular entity, but rather as a, a multiple and diverse set of resources that could be ordered and through this ordering um, clearer paths from present to future could be could be articulated if we accept that there is a rupture between past and present what problems does that generate for neo-confucianism or for using confucianism as a global uh, source of thought so the problem with assuming a, a a distinction between past and present or a rupture between past and present um, in some ways commits us to the conclusion Joseph Levinson reached in his famous book, um, Confucian China and Its Modern Fate, which is to say that Confucianism is dead in the sense that it no longer forms precedents 
for action in the present. That is to say, not that the past was not resplendent and important and historically significant in its own right. The problem was precisely that Confucianism no longer posed a set of moral or normative commitments that could both guide our action in the present, but also help us understand that action in an intelligible way as a continuation of something that had gone before. So many people in the early parts of the 20th century in China, so many young intellectuals were insistent that the way forward for China was to simply abandon its past and continue lines of inquiry that had been set out within your forms of your American knowledge production, particularly associated with, with mathematics and science. But many of these thinkers associated with, with the May 4th, including Yusha Jun and people associated with the National Heritage Journal, actually had, had an alternative view that I think was, was equally compelling, which was to undermine the certainty of the present as a vantage point from which to judge the past and from which to adjudicate our present action, right? That it was an ephemeral moment. It was just a brief moment that spanned past and future. And that was what was really important was to kind of think about how you could cultivate connections to the past that could provide precedence for action in the present. So one of the things that I use their, um, their work to say in this project is uh, precisely because the past was not seen as something that simply produced an insurmountable background condition or that embeds us in contexts over which we have no control. Their move was, was much more creative. It was to say that we're not always certain about what the past holds. And it is certainly through present action agency undertaken in the present that we come to understand the past. Um, but the, those connections to the past have to be deliberately cultivated. Um, we have to engage in these affiliative activities to actually determine whose past or what past it is that we're actually continuing. So this is actually quite important because if you, if you understand their interlocutors, um, their more radical interlocutors, is saying something akin to, we need to abandon the Chinese past and continue the, the Western one. Um, they were saying something very similar, except, except saying that we can continue the Chinese past here in China, as well as potentially elsewhere in the world, that um, our pasts become our pasts precisely through these affiliative activities, precisely through conscious cultivation of connections to them, and awareness and knowledge of them, and the kind of academic organizational activities um, that make the past coherent to us. And this was a very important move for me because I I feel like all along in my own research, I've taken past Chinese thinkers as my own interlocutors, as my own resources for thinking uh, about politics. I feel like they've helped me justify what it is that I'm, what it is that I'm doing. And they've cleared a path for helping me understand why it can be possible. That is to say, just as an American who grew up in Pittsburgh, it doesn't necessarily mean that my past necessarily has to do with the American national past, um, but rather my past is what I, in some senses, I, I choose to make of it. So one of the points that was picked up in your talk yesterday was this idea of, if we're talking about the Chinese past, whose past are we actually talking about? Or who has the authority to say what is the Chinese past mm -hmm. singular? What, what are your thoughts on that as about the Chinese past being not only Chinese? Right. So, um, and it comes out of this, um, the sort of research finding or, the, or these insights that I found in the, in the National Heritage Journal, these people saying there simply isn't a singular Chinese past. The problem with the past, in fact, is that it's too plural, it's too diverse, it's too diffuse, and it's in need of actual organization. So there isn't a singular given heritage that people in the present are inheriting. Rather, this heritage is, is itself, it's brought into being through these processes of organization and self-identification. So that's one part of the story. I think the other part of the story 
is what I would call a politics of recognition. I mean, so speaking from political theory or political philosophy, there's a, a long tradition of scholarship about how it is we come to be recognized as members of certain communities rather than others. And, and this comes up, of course, in um, racial politics in the United States, as well as um, religious and, and secular um, sort of debates in, in the European Union. How is it that we're taken to be a member of a certain national community and not of another so it's not simply about the kind of past with which a singular person identifies himself or herself, but rather about how that person is recognized by others to fit within certain kinds of narratives about the past. But on one level, although there's, I think that the politics of difference is necessarily political, that it's not something that an individual scholar like myself can resolve definitively one way or another, but rather it's always in a process of negotiation and contestation. But I think it's important to sort of open the door to an alternative way of thinking about national pasts to kind of pluralize them and fracture them and to think about the ways in which historical events and processes and experiences are not simply associated with one singular group of people, but rather always cross-cut. They have transnational identities. The Chinese past, for example, if you consider the long history of interaction between, say, Islam and China and the, what is now called the Hui nationality, Hui Minzu, in China today. The fact is that it's the articulation of this Hui identity could only happen in the 20th century through conversation with the global Islamic revival that was going on at the time. So it's only by understanding the association of these early 20th century Hui intellectuals with that global Islamic revival that we can come to understand the articulation of themselves and their own self-identity as an ethnic group. So in that sense, once we recognize that that's the case, it becomes increasingly difficult to sustain the idea that there's a singular Chinese past that is purely possessed by people who are ethnically Chinese. There's, in fact, multiple Chinese pasts that draw these, these affiliations into all corners of the world. And maybe it's our obligation as scholars to actually investigate those rather than to continually reproduce a nationalist narrative that, that, that brings us back to a singular version of the present, which is these May 4th thinkers show us is, is simply not the case. So to take you back to the title of your talk, um, how should we use the Chinese past? If there was one thing that you could tell our, our audience, what would it be about that particular question? So if we accept that Chinese people can think and that they've had meaningful historical experiences, we are committed to using the Chinese past for our present day thinking and action. I think we're committed to it. We have a responsibility to do it. So let's undertake that task. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.